0: Hello and welcome to another T-Rex Talk. This is, uh, I know that we missed an episode as we were preparing for SHOT Show, but we just got back from SHOT Show and now I'm recording an episode about the ATF, rather unsurprisingly, and their new uh, pistol ban rule. They have a final rule that they have published describing that all pistol braced weapons are in fact SBRs. Um, there's actually a little bit of a wiggle room in theory, but that's only because the bill is so incredibly poorly written when it comes to the description of what a pistol braced, uh, pistol would actually be compared to an SBR. I think it's safe to assume that everything is just going to be classified as an SBR. Now there hasn't been quite as much time to study this particular bill because they rolled it out two or three days right before SHOT Show. Uh, a huge percentage of the people who would normally look into these things and carefully dissect them and digest them and figure out what policies should be were in the middle of preparing uh, to take their companies to Shacho. The compliance officers at a bunch of companies who would normally go over this stuff with a fine-toothed comb uh, were probably in the middle of arguing with Teamsters about how their stuff should be transported around the Venetian Convention Hall floor at that very moment. So, there's been a lot of chatter about this, but there hasn't been a lot of focused conversation. I'm glad that I, I waited to talk about this until I'd had an opportunity to talk to a bunch of people at SHATCO because I think that the ATF very purposefully and somewhat maliciously decided to release the language of this new final rule uh, right before SHOT Show, just to like throw a wrench into the gun industry as a whole, because everybody was so busy, because everybody was so preoccupied, because they knew that everybody would be talking about this instead of their regular actual business at SHOT Show. It's kind of a jerk move, but I think that it actually uh, backfired on them and had a significant silver lining, which I will talk about later. But one. One of them is that I think that it was actually good for the entire industry to be talking about the ATF and talking about this issue together. And I had a bunch of great conversations with a bunch of people and I have a lot more thoughts and uh, I would say... <laughs> Uh, Better insight into this particular rule than I did uh, on Friday, which is which would have been when I would have recorded this episode um, without any real knowledge or preparation. When I was swamped with shot show preparations myself, so sorry that we missed an episode, but this one will be better for it. Also, there are now a bunch of resources on this particular rule change that I can point to. There will be links. In the description, uh, the show notes of this particular episode that you can go and watch or listen to. Uh, the first one I'm going to link to is uh, a Forgotten Weapons video about this particular issue with some historical context, which I think is really important. If you have watched our suppressor video from a few years ago, if you have watched our suppressor video from a few years ago, you will know that the NFA, the National Firearms Act, that was passed in 1934, the original piece. Of legislation, which is actually legislation, uh, not just a a spurious, made up, off the top of their head uh, rule change. That originally planned to ban all handguns. All concealable pistols were originally banned by the NFA. And then somebody pointed out in the drafting of that particular bill that if you ban concealable handguns because they're being used to commit significant crimes, well, uh, the the gangsters are just going to be chopping down their shotguns and their rifles to make those more concealable, walking around the streets of Chicago, putting everybody into pine overcoats. See... And so um, they realized that they would need to add short barrel rifles and short barrel shotguns to the language of the bill in order to prevent all concealable weapons from existing in the United States of America. Now, obviously, cooler heads prevailed in the discussion of the bill. And they realized like, hey, we can't we can't actually take handguns away from Americans. That's crazy. You can't possibly make the case that this crime wave is best dealt with by removing the most defensible weapon that a vast majority of Americans happen to own and carry. And so they removed handguns from the bill, but they left short barrel rifles and shotguns on there as this weird vestigial thing that was meant to close a loophole that no longer existed in a thing. So it's dumb that they're there. It's been dumb that they're there ever since 1934. And it's caused a couple of issues occasionally. And Ian at Forgotten Weapons points out a story that I had uh, no idea that this had had happened. Uh, I did know that After World War II, the United States government owned a whole bunch of M1 Garand rifles, or M1 Garand rifles, depending on uh, how you say it. And they sold those as military surplus to American citizenry. Now, that part I knew. I actually mentioned that in the uh, Why Everybody Needs an Air 15 video. But what I didn't know was that the original language of the 1934 National Firearms Act They declare a short barrel rifle to be anything with a barrel length of less than 18 inches. And the M1 Garand, despite being a big, heavy steel and wooden battle rifle, uh, adored by some GIs and General Patton alike, uh, it had a barrel length of 16 and one quarter inches, making it a terrifyingly concealable SBR in the eyes of the NFA. Now, after the government sold tons and tons and tons and tons of these M1 rifles to the American citizenry, somebody realized, oh, we actually are selling illegal SBR rifles to folks. And they did, uh, I think, a very reasonable thing which was to admit that they were the ones that had caused the mistake. And they should in no way penalize the people who bought this thing. They had gone out of their way, the United States government to enable people and facilitate people owning things that were now illegal on paper. And so they changed the paper, they changed the rule so that 16 inches uh, was the new limit. And all the M1 grands that they sold to the people were, uh, you know, they, they were now fine. And Ian at Forgotten Weapon makes the case that this is exactly what has happened now. For the last 10 years, the ATF has told people that it is okay to buy pistol braces, that putting a pistol brace on a short-barreled pistol does not make it a short-barreled rifle. And so over the last 10 years, uh, the congressional uh, research folks estimated that 10 to 40 million pistol braces have been sold, and uh, there's therefore 10 to 40 million newly illegalized SBRs out there. Now, personally, I think that the number could be a lot higher uh, just based on talking to folks uh, at SHOT Show. Now, the ATF in their proposed rule actually say they estimate that number to be three to seven million, but I do not know why they came up with such a tiny number when uh, congressional research people came up with a higher number and me just walking around and talking to people at SHOT Show about how many braces and how many braced pistols they have sold uh, leads to potentially a way higher number. Now, the numbers actually bring us to our first logistical issue with this uh, this new rule. Uh, we're going to call it Rule 08. It has a much longer uh, number, but... Uh, there's obviously some legal issues, there's obviously some moral issues, there's obviously some consistency and jurisdictional issues with this rule, but now we're running into our first logistical rule, and that is that it takes the ATF currently a huge amount of time to process the paperwork to actually register an SBR legally, and the way that you're supposed to do this now is you buy a full-length rifle and then you begin filing the Form 1 paperwork that allows you to legally Uh, converted into a short barrel rifle. And then the ATF gets all of your paperwork and your picture and your fingerprints and the $200 that you have to pay uh, for the tax stamp. And then they process this thing for months. And currently, they get 10s to 100,000 paperwork requests for registering these things. And it takes them months and months and months. I posted uh, on Instagram that it takes many, many days for the electronic and uh, and many months for the paper form one. And I got a million people in my comments saying that they had been waiting months, many months for the electronic, and they were now into a year plus wait for their paper form. So the amount of time that it takes the ATF to process any of this paperwork is incredibly lengthy. And now they're asking for, in their estimations, three to seven million people to file paperwork within the next 120 days to register their SBRs properly. Or if you go by other people's numbers, they're demanding that 10 to 40 million Americans file paperwork within the next 120 days. That is an insane amount of paperwork for an agency that can barely handle a fraction of that. And it takes them forever and ever and ever to do it. And it's also worth pointing out that the ATF is doing this exactly backwards. Instead of telling us to get our stuff together and then they are going to uh, allow us to create the SBR once we have the paperwork in hand. They're doing a very backwards thing where they're saying that we have technically been owning SBRs for the last 10 years or so. We are technically already felons. We are already in possession of an illegal device, and they would like us to send them our picture, our fingerprints, and incriminating photos of that illegal device, which is, uh, you know, possession of this is a felony with a mandatory minimum of 10 years in prison. We're supposed to send all of that stuff to the federal government. And then there's another interesting wrinkle here that was pointed out by uh, Steve. Steven Stambolia at uh, Gun Owners of America, and I'm going to link to a video from the Guns and Gadget YouTube channel talking about this issue, which is that The the ATF runs its own background checks now. They no longer run background checks through the FBI. Those background checks stay open for 88 days, and your paperwork fails immediately if the background check fails or if the 88 days run out. So let's imagine that not all 40 million possessors of SBRs file their paperwork in the next 100 days. Let's imagine that it's only like 10 million. It is going to take (laughs) the ATF literally years to wade through some of that paperwork even if it's all electronic files and all of those things will be immediately denied as soon as that 88 day background check window runs out all of those people will then technically have failed to register their items as an SBR but they will be you know registered not only as owning SBRs but also as having failed the registration process And the gentleman uh, who pointed this out, who is a lawyer for Gun Owners of America, when he went down to the ATF booth, because of course the ATF has a booth at SHOT Show, and he asked them about this issue, this 88-day mandatory uh, time limit on background checks and paperwork processing, they said, yeah, as as soon as that 88 days run out, this will immediately be a failed registration, and that will cause an enforcement action. So I will uh, link to that video in the show notes below so you can watch his description of that. It's pretty interesting to talk to a bunch of different lawyers who are reading this bill. And again, this is a 300-page document of insanely contradictory nonsense. It's incredibly confusing, and it was dropped at the busiest time in the year for these lawyers and for these gun organizations, I believe, on purpose, uh, very deliberately. And so there hasn't been a huge amount of time to analyze this entirely, But in many ways, you don't have to eat the whole apple to know that it's bad. Literally, anywhere that you open up this document, you see a brand new problem. Another one that a gun lawyer I just randomly bumped into on the floor of shot pointed out is that the the ATF isn't actually allowed to just randomly and arbitrarily waive a tax. It's very clear when they're given the authority in the NFA that uh, they are supposed to, it says that they shall levy this tax. They have some level of discretion on who they're going to pursue for certain things, of course, but you can't just uh, apply one set of the law after you've totally redesigned it and arbitrarily waive the other set of the law. So it's extremely likely that even if uh, this is not a trap and it is in fact a good faith uh, registration thing, they will come back to everybody who applied, and say, sorry, guys, we uh, we need to slavishly obey the Constitution, which says that we need to follow to the letter the edicts of Congress. And therefore, we uh, are going to have to charge all of you 200 bucks, uh, all 40 million of you send us 200 bucks right away, pronto and uh, restart your paperwork. It could happen. And it's incredibly confusing to try to understand what some of the things that are written in this bill actually mean. Uh, I talked to another lawyer on the floor of SHOT Show. I'm not going to say his name. I'm not even going to say who he works for. But he told me that local ATF field agents routinely call him instead of their superiors when these new rules drop because they have no idea what they mean and neither do their superiors. And since he is a compliance officer uh, and he understands these things pretty well, instead of going to their bosses who wrote the rules, they actually go to him and say, like, hey man, uh, what does this actually mean? What is this what is this going to do for us? What are what are what, what do you think our superiors are expecting us to do based on this gobbledygook? Thanks to the fact that this thing dropped right before SHOT Show, I actually had a ton of conversations with lawyers, with lobbyists, with manufacturers, uh, and I didn't talk directly to some ATF agents. Uh, Surprisingly, the lines at their booth were actually pretty long, so I I didn't actually get a chance to talk with any ATF agents about this, but a bunch of other people did. That's one of the reasons that I think that this kind of backfired, this plan of throwing this wrench into SHOT Show. Uh, at the very last minute actually caused more unity on the floor than a lot of other things that have happened in the past. I would say that this was the kindest and nicest shot show where I heard the least uh, amount of backbiting, the least amount of snarkiness, the least uh, amount of uh, alpha maleness on the floor. There was a great sense of unity. And uh, I think we, uh, we have to thank the ATF for that. And a bunch of people were comparing notes and pointing on all the things that they uh, had noticed about the, the bill. And there's just, there's just tons of, of weird things that I don't believe were thought through at all. Unintended consequences of this bill that make no sense or have these incredibly confusing gray areas. Um... For example, regular Form 1 SBRs can be uh, added to a trust. These cannot. Uh, Another one is that SBRs are actually already banned at the state level in uh, seven or eight states, depending on how you count Illinois, because that's another gray area right now. And so when the ATF at the federal level declares these 40 million pistols to actually be SBRs, They've really just declared millions of pistols that are legal under state law to now be illegal under state law. And that's going to cause some significant issues for residents of those states. Even if we took this rule at face value and we assumed that it was a good faith uh, way to clean up some miscommunication and inconsistencies over the last 10 years when the ATF has sent a letter saying that pistol braces are fine, but you can't shoulder them. Actually, they're fine and you can shoulder them. If this is just trying to clean that up, it does so in one of the most confusing and aggressively anti-gun owner ways that you could possibly imagine. And if they truly admit that there are somewhere between three or seven or 10 or 40 million of these pistol braces, then they definitely fall under the category of in common use. Which is a legal test applied by Heller. And there's also no way that some of these restrictions will actually stand up to the tests imposed by the Bruin decision. And such an incredibly overreaching rule change that affects not only millions and millions of gun owners, but the laws of several states, well, that really runs afoul of the precedent set by the Supreme Court in the EPA versus uh, West Virginia versus EPA case. So, in my opinion, there is absolutely no way that this thing holds up to legal scrutiny, and there will be a ton of lawsuits filed against the ATF by the now uh, more unified firearm industry. And then there's also the fact that this thing is very clearly, obviously, a trap. There's no way that this thing can function as it is described. It's just a way to scare people into, A destroying their property, because that's one option, or B, sending a bunch of self-incriminating documents to the ATF that will never actually be processed properly. They'll just be added to a new de facto uh, SBR registry without, you know, all the proper Form 1 stuff getting done. All I can say is that this thing is absolutely some kind of trap, and I would point out it's not even listed in the federal registry yet, so that 100-day countdown has not even begun ticking. This isn't a proper in-place federal rule, and a bunch of people don't know that yet, including some ATF agents that were on the floor, allegedly, apparently. Now some of you may be asking, is this bureaucratic incompetence? Uh, Or is this more than that? And there's actually some historical precedent for these kind of traps as well. Back in the 1970s, the ATF uh, had kind of gotten off the rails a little bit, and there was a subcommittee, a congressional subcommittee that was formed to hold a hearing and try to figure out what was going on in the ATF. Believe it or not, Joe Biden actually on that subcommittee. And despite Joe Biden being on the subcommittee, their, their final report that they wrote said Uh, Several things, one of which was, and I'm going to quote this, "...75% of BATF gun prosecutions were aimed at ordinary citizens who had neither criminal intent nor knowledge, but were enticed by agents into unknowing technical violations." So traps, I'm not going to say entrapment, because entrapment sounds like a legal thing that requires, uh, you know, some significant proof, and I would want to uh, know more about individual cases before saying that people had engaged in specific entrapment, in the same way that I think that federal agents should think very carefully before they, you know, use a blanket statement to say that 10 to 40 million United States citizens are in fact felons and have been felons for multiple years without conducting a single criminal investigation on, you know, any of them. But this is the historical pattern of the ATF operations. It is much, much easier to go after law-abiding citizens than it is to go after the criminals that uh, their, their job actually requires them to. And it's much easier for them to write new laws as fiat themselves and implement them as rules than go through the legislative process. There so are many ways the ATF is doing this thing where they are outside of their jurisdiction and they're kind of in almost everybody else's jurisdiction, throwing their weight around without any of the checks and balances. That those other departments or those other branches of government are supposed to have. The good news is I don't think this is going to stand up in court. The bad news is that the ATF is going to continue to do wild and reckless, painful things like dropping rules at inconvenient times and kicking down people's doors and shooting people's dogs and confiscating people's weapons. Oh, I talked to a bunch of law enforcement agents at SHOT Show as well, and they gave me story after story of law enforcement agents who have had their guns confiscated by the ATF for literally no cause, the charges have been dropped, and they don't get their guns back. So the good news about such a gigantic overreach that this new Final Rule 08 is, that literally addresses 10 to 40 million Americans, vast chunks of the firearm industry, Uh, is that it really is getting people on the same page and we're talking about the same things. A lot of folks, when the ATF went after, for example, bump stocks, didn't care because they didn't care about bump stocks. When the ATF constantly and repeatedly tries to shut down Polymer 80 and Polymer 80's business and put everybody that has purchased their products in grave legal threats, we're like, well, you know, I don't have a P80. But this is a big enough issue and it so clearly shows what the ATF MO is that but I think that we're actually going to get considerable amount of movement out of this. There's actually going to be a very positive legal reaction that I think will bear some good fruit. And uh, I think that is the silver lining in the dark cloud. And uh, I'm trying to think if there's any other metaphors that I can throw in here before we end the podcast, but I'm not coming up with anything. So thank you very much for listening. Watch this issue very closely. And again, I am giving you no advice whatsoever on how to comply with the law because I am not a lawyer. I'm just pointing out that you can do whatever you want when it comes to clear and obvious traps.